Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's been a pretty incredible week in Brazilian politics. The most significant development has been a court ruling overturning the conviction of Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, uh, the former president of Brazil, commonly known as Lula, who is one of the most charismatic and controversial political figures in the country. The overturning of Lula's conviction sets the stage for him to run for president in 2022, which it seems like he's likely to do based on a what sounded like a stump speech that he gave after the, his conviction was overturned, against the incumbent Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, who is, uh, the best way to describe him is Trump, but even worse. It seems that Bolsonaro has embarked on a strategy of herd immunity for the COVID-19 pandemic that has put many, many Brazilians at risk and raised its death rates to one of the worst in the world. He has also ceded his government with former military figures and openly praised the country's military dictatorship, which has only been out of power for about three decades. In other words, Lula is shaping up to be the primary challenger to a man who seems intent on wrecking Brazilian society and democracy. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to get into what happened with Lula, why he was convicted, and why the conviction was overturned. And then we're going to talk about what his reemergence means for the threat to Brazilian democracy posed by Bolsonaro and what's likely to happen in the coming Brazilian presidential election. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Has it been a year since we've been doing this from home? It has a, a full year. Yeah, today marks the, the one year anniversary of Worldly recording from home. Happy anniversary, guys. Worldly at home. <laughs> Should we sell t shirts or something? Maybe. <laughs> it's Worldly at home with our little logo and like a house put next to it or something. The world maybe, from maybe your living room. House in the shape of a globe. The world from your living room. Yeah, that's really weird. I would like to have gone to another country at this point. That would make me happier. Go, go. But, not local, not global, global. <laughs> <laughs> nope. That's from uh, Up in the Air. Great movie and even better book. So Brazil. <laughs> wait, 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 <laughs> Don't care. <laughs> oh. I, I had to place the movie. I, I hope, yeah, I was like, that's the George Clooney and. Yeah. Um, they have like an affair or something. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes, with Vera Farmiga. There, there we go. Great movie. I like the movie a lot. And one of Anna Kendrick's bre- uh, breakout roles. Yes, that's true. And and we do stand Anna Kendrick in this household. Uh, probably the greatest export from Maine outside of lobsters. <laughs> yeah, Maine, Maine. And L.L. Bean, state. probably. It's like lobsters, L.L. Yeah. Bean, and Anna Kendrick. That's what we got. They also have a decent beer scene in Maine. I will recommend that. That's no, true. The, the, the beer scene in Portland is turning into a bigger city. But uh, still, most people think of it as vacation land. and Or, you know, where people from Massachusetts go to get away. <laughs> Okay, speaking of getting away from the law, I'm sorry, you guys. I, just, like, I needed to. I needed to do something to reorient this conversation. That's like the best I could come up with on short notice. It's a segue. <laughs> I just apologize to everyone for everything that just happened. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. You guys, I'm sure you all love us enough to forgive us our occasional excesses. Um, it's been a yeah. year at home. Yeah, yeah. Pretty evident. <laughs> yeah. It, really, it, it really, it really has. <laughs> Jen, why don't you um, tell people a little bit about Lula and why he's so important for Brazil? Sure, that's. Really awkward transition. One moment. Let me go back to thinking about things. I reject the implication that I wasn't thinking about things, although I wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, so Lula was president of Brazil, Latin America's largest economy, for two terms between 2003 and 2011. Um, He's a leftist. He basically billed himself always as a socialist. Uh, when he came into power, he saw himself as, you know, being able to try to work within the capitalist system to try to make things fairer. Um, he grew up in poverty, was a shine boy, started working in a factory just in his early teens, became a really powerful union leader, and then eventually the country's president. He was very much uh, an advocate for the poor and for the working classes. And during his tenure, he actually oversaw a, a pretty historic period of growth and poverty reduction in the country. When he left office in 2010, he had an 83% approval rating, and the economy was growing at more than 7% annually. So he's very much beloved by uh, a huge sector of the population, particularly the poorer and working class. He is not so much beloved by many of the wealthy elites and the more conservative and right-wing faction of the country, the Jair Bolsonaro's of the world. But yeah, I mean, his Workers' Party is, you know, really, really popular uh, in in many segments of the society. Um, He's now 75. He had originally hoped to seek a third term uh, in 2018, but then he was jailed on corruption charges and was unable to seek election after being stripped of his political rights. So that kind of paved the way for Jair Bolsonaro's you know, ascent to power. Yeah, it's it's worth talking a bit about the corruption charges um, themselves because they're they're hugely significant in terms of like understanding where Brazilian politics right. is at right now. So, a lot of this centers around uh, something called Operation Car Wash, which is an investigation into a scandal involving Brazil's national oil company, Petrobras, just what it's called for short. Uh, so, basically, the way that the scheme worked, the Petrobras scandal is that a bunch of construction companies would systematically overcharge Petrobras for its contracts. Then they would give kickbacks to Petrobras executives, leaders, staff members, and friendly politicians to make sure that they didn't get caught and everybody was happy. And so for many years, there was a cartel of construction leaders who were bilking the government functionally in Petrobras for huge, and we're talking billions of dollars uh, in terms of the scheme. Like, it's really probably the largest corruption scandal ever uncovered uh, in a democratic country. It's it's truly astonishing. And so the Brazilian police cottoned on to this at one point uh, through, of all things, the investigation of money laundering through a car wash, hence Operation Car Wash. And the scandal started to increasingly indict large members of the Brazilian political elite in the mid-2010s, mid-late 2010s, which also coincided with a pretty significant bust in the Brazilian economy owing to the declining value of commodities, things like oil. Uh, And all this was just not not good for the Brazilian political establishment. So as Jen indicated, Lula was extremely popular when he left office, but his successor, Dilma Rousseff, was not nearly so popular as a result of all these scandals happening, though she was not implicated in them individually. 
And Brazil started to go through an outsider, anti-establishment political moment. Now, at this point, it seemed this is around 2018. Jen was just talking about it. It seemed like Lula might be primed to make a political comeback. He's very popular, has a lot of credibility uh, with the working class in the country, except he got caught up in Operation Car Wash. And now, Alex, his element of it and the reason he was convicted in the first place centered on uh, an apartment condo deal. Yeah, and I have to be honest, I still am somewhat confused by by this apartment issue um, because it's it's weirdly convoluted. But but basically, I'm going to make this like really easy because it gets odd. But there's essentially like Lula took a bribe in the form of an apartment as part of this broader Operation Car Wash scheme. That's at least the allegation. And he denies it vehemently, even though there is some evidence uh, that his, you know, his his wife, who's his, his late wife, you know, visited this apartment, uh, but no keys were exchanged or anything like that. And so, in effect, that was his bribe, right? That one of the construction companies, OAS, uh, was basically like, here, Lula, take this apartment, look the other way, enjoy the, this windfall from this, you know, nearly $6 billion corruption scandal, which is just ridiculous. And so, as part of, like, the independent inquiry into this entire situation. The judge at the time, who was beloved, uh, Sergio Moro, basically said like, hey, Lula's a part of this. We might go after him. And Dilma Rousseff, uh, who was the president and, you know, like a protege of Lula's, put him into like a position of power in order to escape like being prosecuted. And that was in part what led to her impeachment down the line. And so this has been a whole drama around Lula. Like, how seriously was he involved in the whole bribery scheme? Was he really going to take this apartment in this uh, now pretty downtrodden city that apparently nearby there is a place called Lula Snacks that has nothing to do with him, um, but people go there now as like a tourist attraction? Or was he, you know, being like maligned uh, with, with political intention by uh, the judge who, uh, interestingly enough, went into Bolsonaro's government uh, but resigned recently over... Um, the way, you know, Bolsonaro's been handling things. So it's a fascinating drama. But now uh, it gets to be literally, you know, relitigated because his release from being barred in Brazilian politics effectively has started the 2022 election. And people are already saying it's going to be Lula versus Bolsonaro, um, which some have likened uh, in very rough terms, like Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, which should be fun already in a very rancorous vitriolic political situation in, in, in Brazil, which uh, for some, in effect, is like democracy is on the ballot. Yeah, I just want to kind of summarize here and kind of really clarify how big of a deal this was that Lula was prosecuted and convicted for a, a brief time, for about a year and a half, actually put in prison. Again, Lula, you know, super popular uh, among big section of Brazilian society, but Brazil for decades and decades has been plagued with horrific corruption, not just the Petrobras scandal, though that was definitely the biggest. And so, you know, his conviction was also seen, and, you know, in addition to the conviction of a whole bunch of other really senior officials and business people, I mean, CEOs of a whole bunch of companies, it was this huge kind of sweeping investigation. And this was seen by a lot of people in Brazil and elsewhere as you know, essentially cleaning house is something that needed to be done as, you know, rule of law was finally coming to Brazil, that even the most senior leadership, you know, weren't able to dodge the law and were being held accountable. 
It was very much seen in this way. It was supported by a lot of people. However, because of the fact that the rule of law wasn't very strong in Brazil, there were also all of these allegations about, you know, prosecutorial misconduct, that the judge Moro was uh, collaborating, there's evidence of this, with the prosecution, even though he was the judge, uh, and kind of giving them tips of where they should look. Uh, it's not something you're supposed to do. So there was very much also this perception, which was, of course, pushed also by Lula and his supporters and his lawyers, that this was just a political witch hunt, that he was innocent, that, you know, this is just about trying to get him and the Workers' Party out of power and get rid of the left-wing, progressive, socialist kind of business model that they were advocating and had been pursuing for, you know, years. And so it was hugely divisive in the sense that people kind of retreated to their corners. If you were a supporter of Lula, you probably thought he was being railroaded here. But I think it's really important to understand how huge a political earthquake this was, that all of these people, I mean, like dozens and dozens and dozens of officials were convicted. It was a huge, huge deal. And it was seen as a really big kind of step forward for accountability, for anti-corruption, for rule of law in Brazil. Uh, and then it kind of all fell apart. Yeah, it's it's a really complicated issue, right? Because the Petrobras scandal was was real and significant in all of the ways that the three of us have just been describing, right? You can't underplay it. It was an extraordinary shock to the Brazilian political system and national conscience. At the same time, the way that it played out politically was really shady in a lot of ways, right? So it galvanized a big anti-corruption movement. But if you looked at the demographics of who was involved in this anti-corruption movement in the 2010s when Petrobras was, was breaking anew, it was mostly the upper middle classes of Brazilian society. It's a really famous photo from around the time where you uh, have a picture of these two white presenting Brazilians, obviously in Brazil, race and class are, are, are deeply entangled with each other owing to the colonial era hierarchies in the country. And you've got these two white looking people dressed up in, in Brazil's national colors going to a protest. And then they have a dark skinned nanny who is pushing their child and she's dressed up in an all white maid's uniform. In effect, they were making their nanny take their kid to a protest with them, a protest she may not agree with, conscripting her into their political cause. Right? And the reason it polarized on class lines is that Lula's party, the PT as it's known, it's the Workers' Party, but PT is the Brazilian acronym, Lula and, and Joma's party, was widely seen as the champion of the lower and working classes, as we've discussed. And corruption is seen as endemic among the Brazilian upper class, correctly, by the way. The roots of Brazil's corruption problem, like a lot of other countries in Latin America, stem from these same colonial-era hierarchies. Elite impunity over the course of centuries. You have lots of people who are from descended from the wealthy colonial-era Spanish or Portuguese elite, who then continue to hold power and do whatever they want over the course of a long period of time, and end up thinking they can and do get away with whatever they want. So corruption investigations that target people like Lula and Joma were seen by supporters of the PT not as sincere anti-corruption efforts, but as uh, the elite using so-called principles to destroy the champions of redistribution in Brazil and reassert their traditional control over Brazilian society. Uh, and that's why the revelations about this judge, Sergio Moro, who was at the heart of the investigation, not only like him joining the Bolsonaro government later on, which is like pretty striking 
because it suggested that he was willing to work with an extremely far-right, extremely conservative avatar of the Brazilian elite, uh, though he does bill himself as a populist. Again, politics in Brazil are quite complicated, which we'll get into more in the second segment. But the evidence that Moro was working with prosecutors in an improper way, judges are supposed to be non-biased, but he was secretly giving the prosecutors and investigators in the scandal tips and advice on how to handle public relations and leads they should pursue and so on, suggested that this was, in part, really was an effort to set up people like Lula. And the timing of his disqualification, I think, is also very notable in this context, because it, it seems like his case was pushed through faster than other political leaders, just in time for him to be blocked from running in the 2018 election. So if you're somebody who's a left-wing voter in Brazil, someone who benefited from the like decade and a half of PT rule, you're, you're thinking, wow, this, this really does look like we were set up. And so Lula being released is, is a way of, being, of thinking, hey, we've got a chance to take power back again. Right, maybe we can reassert ourselves. So while in fact he may be corrupt and the evidence is like it's not nothing, right? It's there's some pretty solid evidence that he may have been corrupt. It, it's not so black and white as uh former and arguably disgraced political leader having his sentence overturned on what are basically technical jurisdictional grounds. Yeah, I mean the the judge overturned uh, uh basically annulled the conviction but didn't say that, you know, that he was innocent or anything like that. It just said that he needed to be retried in Brasilia where the crimes actually took place. So uh, the prosecution essentially has to start over and retry him if they want to do that. There's a really interesting quote I I saw, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but I think it really speaks to kind of what Zach was talking about in terms of Lula supporters. It's basically to the effect of, you know what, maybe Lula did steal from us, but if he did, he also helped a lot of us in the process. And it was kind of very much this perception of, all right, maybe he took a little bit for himself off the top, but he also helped lift millions out of poverty. So, eh, we're going to kind of overlook that. There's definitely a bit of that sentiment there as well, that, yeah, he, you know, it, it smells a little funny what he did, um, you know, what he's alleged to have done. Um, but, yeah, he was probably railroaded. And even if he wasn't, well, he still helped a lot of us. So I think it's important, you know, to look at this, but you also can't take the politics out of his, you know, his, the annulment of his charges. The, the judge that did that was also, you know, appointed by the the party and the government that he, that he was affiliated with. Um, so that's the thing, you know, going back to the point about rule of law is that when you don't have, you know, the kind of unbiased, not that, you know, to say that the U.S. does have that either, but, you know, in Brazil, there's a long history of not having pretty, you know, solid rule of law and holding elites to account. And so when you don't have that kind of judicial system, and when everybody is seen to be on somebody's side, uh, it's really hard to know for sure whether a conviction was legit. You know, is this person really corrupt? Was it just political? Is he being, you know, were the charges overturned? Was that a political decision? It's really difficult to know. But I think the bottom line here is that Lula is now set up to, if he wants to, he's, you know, playing coy and saying that he's not necessarily said yet that he's going to run in 2022. But as Zach said, we'll talk about this in the second half, you know, he did give what amounts to a stump speech. Um, It does set up a, a really kind of classic political showdown in Brazil that 
you know, we haven't seen in a while because Lula has been essentially locked up. Two things. One, I think it's just, I think it's important to, to, to note that in 2018, when the election was, you know, going to happen, Lula was likely going to win. That's what polls showed. So that has added to the, um, like, oh, this was sort of a witch hunt against him. But I don't want to leave our listeners with the impression that this is very clearly conspiracy, because there is a, this was a legitimate process um, argument to make, which, which is this. The ministry, let's say, let's just simplify it, like the justice ministry that has led the investigation into Operation Car Wash and all that, is is known as like a fourth branch of Brazil's government. It is sort of an independent body that that operates on its own. There's no political interference in general, or at least in theory, and it just does really good law enforcement police work, uh, building cases. And with Operation Car Wash, they started with with one person who was like a known money launderer and criminal, and he basically said like, "If I talk, the republic will fall." And they did the normal thing, which is, uh, as, as police officers do, which is get some lower level people, have them give up the higher level people and work up and up and up and up. And so that's how they got into the upper echelons of Brazilian elite society, the, the heads of construction companies, the executives um, of Petrobras and, and, and other organizations, top political leaders. And Lula was named by one of these people who you know gave him up. And Lula's argument is basically like, look, there's a political motivation. Why wouldn't you give up a big fish or like say, yeah, he's taking kickbacks in the form of apartments or whatever uh, as a way to get out of it and lower your sentence? That is possible. No one's discounting that. However, it should be noted, and again, and we've talked about, uh, you know, Sergio Moro and his, his, his oddness, but it should be said that there were still lots of Brazilian law enforcement officials working tirelessly to uncover this massive corruption scandal, and they did. Um, is it perfect? Probably not. Um, are there issues? Absolutely. But this is the case that a lot of people make, which is like, look, there was a massive corruption scandal in Brazil. We did the best we could. We uncovered a lot of things, including some top-level folks. And what people who make this argument would say is, why would Dilma Rousseff put Lula in a position of power to basically escape being charged and, and prosecuted if, they, if he had nothing to worry about? Right now, some people would say that's just he, he was worried about a witch hunt, and because she was a protege, she like did him a favor. But others would be like, if you had nothing to hide, don't hide, <laughs> right? So I I just wanted to be clear here that there is a, a decent case to be made that this was bad. Lula got caught up in it, and it was mostly on the up and up. But I, I think the questions we raised are, are important ones. But still, bottom line is Operation Car Wash very bad. It has ruined any views of like the elite really do care about the people, that the PT was a, a great party because they they oversaw a lot of problems. They were in power when a lot of this happened and it paved yeah, the way. Yeah, that's the thing. Just sorry to cut you off, but Joma Rousseff was literally like the energy minister right. in like Lula's government during this, right? So it's not like they were just like tangential. Right. And she was on the board or if not the chair of, of Petrobras at one point. So let's be clear, this 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 massive political earthquake is what paved the road to Bolsonaro. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to focus more on Bolsonaro, what he's doing to Brazil's democracy, the extent to which it's survived his uh, anti-democratic attitudes and handling of COVID-19, and uh, what we can expect from a Bolsonaro-Lula contest in 2022, if that's what comes to pass. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge— that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. 
That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the political situation in Brazil, trying to help you understand why the overturning of the conviction of Lula, the former president, is such a big deal. And uh, now we want to talk about the current president, Jair Bolsonaro, who is wild. The most common comparison for Bolsonaro is Trump. The early term was Trump of the tropics. But since this presidency in 2018, I think it's fair to say that Bolsonaro has taken some of the anti-democratic aspects of Trumpism and the sort of bad governance aspects of it and, and turned them up really to 11, right? They've, they've kind of fed off each other with Bolsonaro seeing Trump as sort of a role model. But uh, the two things that are really notable to me and that I think make the stakes of both Lula getting released, both Lula's conviction getting overturned and his uh, potentially running in 2022 higher are Bolsonaro's handling of the coronavirus and his approach to the country's democracy. Um, let, let's start with the coronavirus issue, Alex. His policy, I mean, is there any fair way to describe it other than just like he wants people to get infected to protect the economy? Uh, it's it's not even that. He just like doesn't believe it's a thing. <laughs> it's like, he, he has basically called it a hoax that plus like, you know, if he got it, it would just be, it's like a little flu, he said before. Um, he just doesn't really buy the argument that the virus as we know it really exists. He's almost done nothing in terms of actually trying to get the country to solve it. He's left almost all aspects of Brazil's coronavirus response to governors, to you know local leaders, which is somewhat like we've done it in the U.S. It makes sense. It's a big country. There's a lot of people. There's some there's uh, folks who live in, in far away places from the capital, but he's he's effectively done nothing. So I would even say that the notion of like he has failed or he didn't want people or wants people to get infected is almost too generous. It's just like, we live in a fantasy world in which this is not a problem. It's actually his masculinity on top of that, and anyone's masculinity will stop this from being a problem. Like, you can just exercise through it. At least Trump acknowledged, like, you might have to, you know, take some medicine. Um, You might have to do something medical to handle it. Bolsonaro's kind of argued the opposite. So I give him no credit. It's one of the, and it's the reason why his country has one of the worst outbreaks in the world. And it's, uh, he's also been pretty anti-science. He's promoted a lot of the same sort of junk science issues as we've seen elsewhere in the West. He's just been a COVID denier really from the beginning, and, and the results have been disastrous. Yeah, I would actually go farther than that. He didn't just do nothing, which he did, but he also pushed against really hard uh, the governors who were trying to do things. Right? He yeah. fought tooth and nail against the governors who were trying to do things like institute lockdowns and mask mandates and things like that. He very much was focused, uh, you know, as a populist, as he tried to run, you know, as a populist on economic strength, on, you know, making sure that everyone has jobs. And 
shutdowns, as the whole world has seen, caused some economic problems. And he was very, you know, has been from the beginning, almost, you know, singularly focused on making sure that the economy stays open to the detriment of public health. And so he has fought hard to try to overturn governors who are instituting mandates, things like that. So yeah, it, it's actually worse. I mean, he he has, you know, declined and taken a long time in getting vaccines for his country. Um, he has said now that, yeah, you know, I'm going to help make sure that that you can get one, you know, if you want one, but I'm not going to take it. And he said really just bizarre things like, I don't know, you know, it's not going to be my fault if a woman grows a beard from the vaccine or you turn into a crocodile. No, uh, those are, those are those are actual literal yes. things that he said. Yeah, that's not that's not. I enough. couldn't make that up if I tried, honestly, because what the hell? You know, he's said that vaccines should only be for dogs. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to take because I had it. He did, by the way, get COVID, and of course, you know, we've seen the many people who are COVID deniers get it. And of course, for some reason, they seem to get either not a you know super strong case. Or they get, you know, really great medical care because they're elites and they end up being fine while all the people who don't have access to medical care and get it die in their countries. But yeah, so I I just want to be clear, again, it's not that he just did nothing, which he did. He actively worked to thwart people who were trying in the country to actually help. He, you know, blocked funding for indigenous people. I mean, all kinds of stuff, really bad stuff. Yeah, there's there's a pretty extraordinary essay in El País, a Spanish newspaper by a Brazilian writer, that goes through the evidence on how Bolsonaro has handled the coronavirus. And one of the points that the author makes is that to call it a, like a mistake or an error in handling is is itself incorrect. That it was a deliberate strategy of undermining the country's response. To COVID vaccine. So, for example, they cite uh, an investigation by the Sao Paulo University Public Health Department and an NGO called Coalition for Human Rights. And the investigation looked at 3,000, over 3,000 federal regulations uh, and concluded that, and here I'm, I'm quoting the El País article, that Bolsonaro and his ministers had and still have the goal of allowing as many people as possible to become infected in the shortest time possible in order to resume full economic activity. The evidence is there in documents signed by the president and some of his ministers. It, like, to me, like, obviously that sounds like horrific malfeasance, and indeed, Bolsonaro's approval ratings are not doing very well. But in the context of his particular brand of extreme right-wing populism, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, one term that you hear for right-wing populism in the United States, thanks to two political scientists, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, is plutocratic populism. The idea being that you present a culture war as your sort of political issues that appeal to the masses while you uh, get your funding and orient actual policy towards the interests of the rich, hence the plutocrats. Bolsonaro has really depended on support from the elite and the economic elite particularly. He, among other things, has allowed the Amazon to be pretty rapaciously deforested under his time in office because that's what Brazil's large corporations want in order to maximize profit, regardless of the environmental concerns. And it seems that his approach to COVID has been consistent with this broader goal, right? It's like you put the interests of the elite and business first. And he's done it to to such a almost sociopathic degree, right? Like deforesting the Amazon is game over for climate change if it continues to get worse than it is. And similarly, 
like just letting people keep shopping is game over for the Brazilian population's survival when it comes to COVID. But it's the same general ideological orientation, right, of, of an extreme prioritization of business interests that has ran through his whole presidency. I want to push back on this a little bit, just a little bit, because I, I agree with a lot of it. But let's take a step back and remember how we got Bolsonaro in the first place. There was Operation Car Wash, which we've talked about. There was Lula not allowed to run, which we've talked about. There was also, at the time, a massive, and, and still is, a massive uh, crime and like killing problem all through Brazil. The, the stats I saw around the time of the election 2018, and I think there's a Fox video with this, and which we'll link to, but there was roughly like 30 you know, murders per 100,000 people, which is like six times as much as in the U.S., which is roughly five per 100,000. And th- that was like the big issue of the time uh, on top of corruption. It was like, look, the PT is a corrupt party. They let this happen. And here's Bolsonaro who does these like finger gun things during the campaign that became a, a, a sensation like MAGA hats. Like everyone was doing finger guns. And he was saying like, look, we're going to institute law and order. The military is going to come in. We are going to safe, you know, like safeguard your family. You know, everyone's going to be okay. Um, and we're going to take care of this killing spree in effect. And that is what, like, led him to win. On top of that is, again, the, the, the PT's fall. But, like, that was his promise. So that's how he comes into power. And then one of the things that he had been saying all along during the campaign and now during his presidency is, like, I, I kind of wish the, the military dictatorship came back. And that young people didn't really remember it. And, and, that, and so they sort of ignored all of his sayings about that. Although he has put a lot of people in the military into the government, and it's still something that he pines for. And so this, this is a long windup to say is that part of the strategy on COVID, yes, it is about, you know, people getting affected, fine. Pushing back on governors, fine. Uh, all that. that. That is definitely part of it. But experts that I were talking to was like, look, if he gets to say there is a crisis in the democratic government that I, as the leader, am trying to push something forward and they are these political, uh, you know, other politicians coming against me, I have then a better case to say that it is time for a military takeover and a dictatorship in Brazil. That it was, in fact, a somewhat of a plot in a, in a way to weaken how democratic governance was working in Brazil. So then, like, a military dictatorship was the better option. Now, you don't have to buy that. It seems pretty crafty for, for a guy who thinks that taking vaccines uh, leads to you turning into a crocodile. But that is what some Brazilian experts were saying at the time, is and, and still somewhat today, that this is all an effort of Bolsonaro to weaken democracy in Brazil purposefully in order to make a, a dictatorship a greater alternative that he himself would like to usher in. Um, and this is why, again, and why we're, part why we're talking about this, is that the 2022 election in general, if it is Lula versus Bolsonaro, if it is a, a small-D Democrat versus Bolsonaro, like, democracy is on the ballot. Like, that is what is up here. Because you can imagine another term for Bolsonaro, uh, with especially with Tons of people in the military, in the government, who have said, like, you know, if things go bad, like, we can basically take over. That that is that is sort of the plan here, and that that is a that that is a possibility. So that I just wanted to get that out there. That Bolsonaro's trajectory is sure plutocratic um, you know, populism and all that, but it is also perhaps, according to some experts, a plan to make like a non-democratic system more palatable than a democratic one. Right. So now, enter Lula back on the stage, right? And he also has the perfect setup to come in and be the the hero, be the savior. He didn't take very long uh, before throwing himself right back in the ring. On Wednesday, he gave a big speech that just so happened to take place in front of the very steelworkers, metalworkers union where his political career started in the 1980s. 
Uh, he gives this big, long, passionate speech. He's standing under a banner proclaiming health, jobs, and justice for Brazil. He says, quote, this country is disorganized and falling apart because it has no government. He goes on and on at, you know, railing against Bolsonaro for being anti-science. He essentially gets to come in and be Lula. He gets to come in and say, look, this government that's been in power since I, you know, since I and my party wasn't, has done everything wrong, you know, led to thousands and thousands of deaths from COVID, mismanagement, there's nobody in charge, there's a huge economic crisis, and gets to come in and just say, hey guys, I'm back, do you want me back, you want me to try? So I think it really sets up a, a huge political showdown. Again, you know, Lula might not run, he's 75, but there's a pretty wild quote that he gave. Alex, if you'd like to read it, because you discovered this quote. Oh, I got it. Um, that definitely suggests he's um, eager, let's say. So he gives an interview uh, recently, and here's what he says. I say every day that I am 75, but I feel I have the energy of a 30-year-old, and I am as horny as a 21-year-old, so I can say to you that I'm alive fighting for democracy. Uh, I look forward to the 2022 election of manhood, uh, which is very clearly on the ballot as well. Yeah, both of these candidates are well. I find it distasteful. I'll, I'll just I'll just leave it there in terms in terms of the way. <laughs> I don't think that's that's too controversial position to say that that's rather distasteful. Yeah, the way the way that they they operationalize a particular vision of masculinity and politics. Love to be horny for democracy. V- vote for me. I'm horny. <laughs> Jeez, but I mean. One one watchword in Brazilian politics that comes up all the time uh, is, is polarization, right? Like like in the United States, uh, you, there's a real problem of people being sorted into different political camps by their socioeconomic status and becoming increasingly extreme in their uh, dislike of the opposing camp. And so one of the, the questions is whether Lula's reemergence on the scene will increase polarization or decrease it, right, and lead to a rancorous, divisive, controversial 2022 election or calm tensions, right? And you can sort of see the argument going both ways. The argument in favor of Lula exacerbating this problem is that he is a, well, he's a pretty vigorous speaker, as we saw there, and is not likely to treat Bolsonaro with kid gloves and um, class warrior who could bring these sorts of issues back to the fore. The argument that he might lessen partisan tensions is that he's a known quantity uh, from the past, somebody who represents a Brazil that was a lot more stable than it is currently uh, and could end up being a sort of palatable choice to a lot of people as compared to the chaos of the Bolsonaro years. And you know, I, I, I'm not sure which of those two arguments I find more persuasive. I do think uh, it's important to note that one of the reasons that Bolsonaro has failed to, to entirely militarize Brazil's democratic government, despite having more military, more people of a military background in the executive branch than was the case during the country's actual military dictatorship, which is a remarkable statistic. Including himself. Um, he was a former captain. Yes, right? that's right. That's his, his, his background is the military, uh, is that he doesn't actually have a political party, right? He's an unaffiliated president who 
has to rely on coalitions of right-wing parties or whoever else he can get to support him in the legislature to pass laws. Uh, that inherently limits his ability to suborn the courts and, of course, the legislature and turn them into sort of vassals that will rubber stamp whatever anti-democratic thing that he chooses to do. Whereas Lula has obviously, you know, been the central figure in the PT for quite some time. Even when Dilma was president, right, he was seen as the, as the person, the figure whose camp she represented, right, the, the, the defining ideologue of the PT. Uh, and so this, I think, puts Lula in an in, – an institutionally more powerful situation. Plus, he's running against an undeniably dismal record on COVID. So it, it makes me kind of hopeful in a lot of ways that whatever one thinks of Lula, the immediate emergency of the Bolsonaro regime may not turn into the crisis that some feared it was shaping up to be. Uh, just one quick thing. you know, To me, looking at a Lula versus Bolsonaro matchup, they are very literally perfect foils for one another. Right. Because Lula is a perfect kind of the, the leftist kind of icon foil for Bolsonaro, for everything, you know, that he is saying that he stands for. Not only does he have an actual you know record of being president for many years, but he very much kind of sets up the kind of exact dichotomy here that is kind of defining the Bolsonaro government. So I think regardless of what happens, I think you're going to see a really remarkable political fight playing out. And I guess just to, for those who may be wondering, like, does Bolsonaro actually have a, have a shot? Most people are saying that he kind of doesn't if he faces Lula for, this, for the simple reason of his entire candidacy in 2018 was, I will keep you and your family safe. He hasn't. You know, he can't he can't say that he has. Um, and if he faces by far, you know, the most popular politician in the country who likely would have beaten him in 2018, it's not looking good. Things can change between now and 2022. Lula may not run, but it's just not looking good for Bolsonaro at the moment. I will say that I think the latest polls show that they would each still at least get enough to face each other in a second round. Right. They would at least get enough kind of to get over the, because there are several other politicians, by the way, there are several. Yeah, and that's true. And on top of that, like, there are there are young people in Brazil who don't remember Lula. You know, he, he's, and, and, and he doesn't really have the same sort of cachet that he used to. But again, like, Bolsonaro had sort of a perfect storm rise, right? The the fall of the PT, Lula being barred, you know, the the, the murder issue. And again, if yeah, this Dilma is- Dilma getting actually impeached also. Precisely, right? So- yeah. like, On dubious grounds, incidentally. And then, and then he won 55-45, which, like, Seems large, but it's really not, right? And against a candidate who was basically the Lula replacement uh, that no one really liked. So it doesn't look good for Bolsonaro going into it. He could still win. Things happen. But most experts would say, like, he he had a moment. He's been disastrous. It's ending for him soon. But, of course, that requires someone to actually defeat him. And at this moment, it looks like Lula may be the person to do it. Of course, the really dark scenario, which we just experienced in the United States, is that Bolsonaro doesn't go quietly. That even if he does lose, as the polls suggest, that he not only rejects the legitimacy of the election, which honestly seems like a given at this point, given the way that he lies about things like the coronavirus vaccine, but that he actually tries to galvanize his massive support among the military and police establishment to do something about it. That's a nightmare scenario, uh, and, and one we will be tracking as that election rolls around if we're uh, at home for another year of worldly, which hopefully we will not be. Uh, as we're starting to get vaccinations here in the United States. We want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all of her hard work stitching together our inane 
early episode conversations. Uh, I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is that you like to get your podcasts. Um, and again, keep sending us your ideas for uh, short episode questions. We haven't done anything with them yet, but we're sorting them and we're thinking about how we're going to use them and integrate them into episodes over the course of time. So keep sending us those emails at worldly at vox.com with any of those thoughts. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Bye. Glocal. <laughs> I had the weirdest dream. I barely remember dreams. But I remember this one. I was Antonio Banderas. Um, but I was in a water park and no matter what anyone said to me, and by the way, I had my voice. I didn't have like his sultry voice. I had my voice <laughs> and no matter what anyone said to me, all I could say was I'm Tony flags. Like I'm going down like the slide. I'm like, I'm Tony flags. People were like, how are you doing? Mr. Mandaris? I'm Tony flags. It's like, like my entire hours long dream. <laughs> <laughs>